Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Paul Curillo, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with Innova Health System. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here, Anthony. Great. All right. Looking forward to a fun chat, Paul. Uh, let me start. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? So, yes, Innova Health System is, um, is a health system located in Northern Virginia. We have uh, five hospitals and three uh, emergency uh, emergency centers. Uh, we cover quite a quite a large region across uh, across the area. Uh, for myself, I joined the organization in um, I believe it was 2019, so about three years ago, uh, to rebuild the cyber operations capability. <clears throat> was asked to stay on uh, as the CISO to rebuild other programs within information security. Uh, and establish uh, data governance uh, and, and drive uh, better cyber hygiene across uh, across our capabilities. Well, let's talk a bit about, a little bit about uh, the idea of rebuilding. Um, can you talk about any of sort of the major things when you came in that that you thought needed to be put into place? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, Anthony. The, the the major thing there was was getting back to basics, was understanding what we had in our environment uh, with respect to end-of-life systems, uh, end-of-life operating systems in particular, uh, whether or not we were effective on our security patching uh, cycles. Uh, as, hap- as what happens in many healthcare systems, um, uh, the team that's responsible for patching really does want to do a good job and, and take care of the systems. Uh, but there are other priorities or, or situations that inhibit that um, that cadence. So over time, uh, the the cyber hygiene begins to drop, and and that's those are the the fundamental things that we addressed when when I first started. Yeah, I've heard I've heard it said before. Eric Decker uh, says it. I'm sure a lot of other folks say it. It's that idea that yeah, there's some exotic and cutting edge stuff we want to be doing, but but so much of it, I don't know, eighty percent. It was the eighty twenty rule is is dealing with the basics. But as you said. If it was easy doing the basics, everyone would be doing them. So right. I think what you're implying is that it's that uh, prioritization, it's that being pulled in other directions, putting out fires, which comes with technical debt and things like that. You have more fires. Right. And then when there's right. a lot of fires, you know, oh, that's why we couldn't, you know, do our regular proper cyber hygiene because we have a limited staff who is being pulled in 50 directions. Exactly. Exactly that. Yes. Uh, you know, when, when you when you look at, the motivation is there to do the job. And what I hear a lot is, well, we just simply don't have enough people to do all this work. We have projects that get prioritized over maintenance. Maintenance then begins to slide. Um, th- that's a common theme. And and I don't know that that's unique to healthcare um, exclusively. It prob- probably is not. Um, but uh, uh, that's where, that's the shit that we have to, that we have to get in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to ensure that there is time to do maintenance on the systems. Um, one of the things that we we have started to do here recently was to rationalize the projects that are coming down the pipeline uh, in terms of uh, what technical debt they may introduce down the road. Uh, uh, we do that by evaluating whether or not uh, uh, there are systems currently in the environment we can remove. 
uh, and whether or not we have systems in the environment that can actually deliver the capabilities, at least 80% of the capabilities that are being sought. Uh, and, and that is helping uh, to, to some degree. That is slowing down the pace a bit so that um, the teams that have to maintain existing systems have more time to actually maintain those systems. So I've, I've, yeah, I've come into this theme recently and I find it really interesting. It seems to me like this would be a new place that the CISO has been pulled into recently uh, for good reason, uh, meaning that application rationalization perhaps didn't always include security to a large extent. But when right. we see that the third party risk grows with every third party, and if we keep adding more and more vendors rather than really examining what we have, where there's duplication, what we need, if we keep adding more and more vendors sort of haphazardly, there are major security implications for that. Oh, once we realize that, we realize the CISO should be involved in these bringing on new vendor decisions and the whole important uh, element of application rationalization. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I certainly can. You're exactly right, and and I'm and I'm glad to have a seat at the table to to have that conversation with our business partners. I think it's critically important that um, the information assurance function of an organization is included in those conversations, from initial inception of the idea through the contracting phase, through the rationalization phase, and then through the project phase, uh, the, the acceptance of the project uh, design evaluation and implementation evaluation. It's critically important because there are risks that we tend to accrete to the organization that if we can identify them early enough, perhaps addressing those uh, will be easier for us than at a very late stage in the game. Uh, when I first arrived at Innova, and this is true for other places that I've worked, uh, typically what happens is it, security security is brought in uh, on go-live day or a week before for some major stumbling block that is preventing some forward movement, only to realize that that major stumbling block is an architectural change to the environment, bringing massive risk to the to the organization and nobody wants to own that risk but everybody wants to move forward had that been reviewed during design phase we would have come to probably a different conclusion perhaps had other options uh, so having seat at the table is important for the CISO in conversations with senior leaders but inviting the information assurance team in to evaluate and assess the idea, the process, the technology, the, the, the solution set is important. Um, uh, we offer a partnership to help evaluate what the risk is and provide advice to decision makers so that they can make informed decisions. Yeah, very interesting. So would you say that a key point in time in this whole thing is before versus after contracting with the vendor? that you have much more ability to influence things before contracting than after? Uh, oh, absolutely. There's, there, without a doubt, there's more leverage uh, before than after. Um, but even after, there's still, there's still some leverage, best practices, uh, the, the, the realities of risk and liability. Uh, it's just harder to have that conversation after the fact. Uh, and there's the potential, because the contract's already signed, there's the potential for 
loss of investment. Um, if the decision is made that the contract can actually cannot go forward, well, the time invested, the money invested may not be recoverable, right? So uh, having the conversation before the contract is signed is particularly important. One other aspect is to ensure that the terms and conditions that we, from a, from a cybersecurity perspective and an operations perspective, um, uh, would would want to have present in that contract are actually in the contract before the signing. After the fact, it's very hard to get a vendor to be compliant with expectations, uh, particularly with vendor monitoring, activity monitoring, uh, and access third-party access to the environment. Uh, so it's really important to, to have that conversation about the expected uh, behaviors and, and put those in the contract, not, not to necessarily restrict innovation, but to ensure that both parties have an understanding of how operations uh, and cyber hygiene shall proceed. I have the image in my head of concrete drying that as the concrete is wet, it's much easier to affect change in the concrete. But as yes. the process goes on, contracts get signed, things happen, that concrete dries more and more, much more difficult for a security professional to come in when it's nice and hard and make the changes that they need to make in order for the risk to be acceptable to the organization. Yes, exactly. Now, we have had situations where we, where we <clears throat> needed to renegotiate contracts uh, primarily because of uh, uh, the the high risk that it, that uh, manifest, uh, or or perhaps we experienced a security incident. We've experienced several security incidents with um, uh, that that manifest in third party vendor environments. Uh, so that of course precipitates a discussion around uh, the contracts and and expectations uh, for going forward. So so we've we have walked that road. It's not an easy road to walk. Those are difficult conversations to have, um, uh, but it's, I think it's important, though, that we try to capture our expectations before we get into um, before we get into the relationship. So we don't want, ideally, we don't want contracts for with third party software vendors and such, and application vendors. We don't want those getting signed without security having been brought into the process to look at it. Correct? We don't want that happening. Okay. Right. right. How, now, do we, for... how do we, how do we kind of work? So there's two elements to it, right? There's right. one element, which is the formal governance process, the rules and regulations that say you cannot sign a, any IT, any contract with any software. It cannot be signed unless there's a checkbox from Paul or Paul's team, right? So that's one thing. That's one element. That's the formal concrete stuff. On the other side, we have creating a culture where they're where they're not afraid to come to I security. Exactly. They don't go, my God, if you go over there, you're never going to get this application going ever. <laughs> right. So it, we don't want that being the culture that everyone's like, I'll do I'll get, I'll worry about it after the fact I'm not going to pull. Right. So we don't want <laughs> exactly. that. So we want both. Correct. We want both to get this right. That's right. That's right. So establishing uh, that latter part is hard to do especially if there's large volume, large activity volume. Um, uh, but committing to a service level, for us, for instance, we commit to a five to 10 day turnaround on every assessment. There are some exceptions. If the scope is particularly large or the information is particularly lacking, 
uh, we may extend extend that. Um, but we're committed to delivering an assessment, a written assessment to our customers, the stakeholders, within five to 10 days, based on the preponderance of information that's available. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll opine upon the risk, uh, we'll provide recommendations and suggestions, uh, but within five to 10 days, that's, that's it. We're gonna give something back. Uh, hopefully it's useful enough, uh, but that, that helps with the setting of expectations. So now folks know, all right, I wanna do this new whiz-bang widget. I wanna get this in, in, into our environment. I need to allot at least five to 10 days <laughs> in this process uh, for an engagement with information assurance. That sounds uh, totally reasonable to me, five to 10 days. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, what we do ask is that folks consider coming back to us at different parts of the journey, pre-contract, uh, pre-project start, uh, uh, design assessment once, because most of the time that the entire design is not known until the project gets going. So design assessment, and then of course, go live, implementation assessment. Two weeks before go live, come back with what the implementation is going to be because between design and implementation, things change. And there's no need to keep coming back to information security every single time a small thing changes. Just change it and then come back for an implementation assessment. And, and at that point, we discuss what changed and then conduct appropriate tests on select controls. So a couple things there. One is, which I really like, you described your users, however you want to put them, some people don't like that term, as customers, which I think right. would put you in a proper mindset because you're delivering a service, right, to these individuals. So describing them as customers puts you in the proper mindset, mind frame to structure your interactions with them in a positive way. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. And our customers, our customers are the business owners who own the relationship with the vendors. They're also the vendors. Yeah. Right? The vendors are providing a service to us right. in some, some, some respect. But they're for us, they're still a customer. They're still trying to deliver a service to the organization. And we're trying to provide information in back. So we receive right. a design. We're trying to assess that design and opine upon how how it affects our environment, whether or not there are any controls that need to be considered, additional controls that need to be considered. So they're a customer as well. Uh, so being mindful and respectful of that relationship is is that's a bit of a culture change, I think, for you know traditional security people. Well, it's it's very interesting, and that's a great point about being a two way street with the vendors because. Anyone who's provided a service to someone knows that you need something from that customer in order to provide them with that service. That's I need right. this information. I need you to do this and that. You want to make it minimal. You don't want to put all the work on the on your customer. But I yeah. need A, B, and C, or I can't deliver the service you've asked for. So what you're saying is you're being sensitive to your customers, the vendors, and saying, I understand you need certain things for me to deliver the service we are getting from you. And I am going to make sure you get that. Exactly. Exactly. That's establishing that service level agreement. Right. Um, and uh, uh, over time that will begin to engender confidence in our, in our contacts with business owners and vendors um, and, and create the environment of collaboration. 
it does take time. It's not, it's not a thing that happens overnight. We've been at this now for mm, probably about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, we are beginning to see the fruits of our labor. So it does take time to, to kind of change that culture. Um, but it, it's worth the effort. Uh, we're, we're able to turn, uh, turn around reports, um, and advice on, 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 on a regular cadence, uh, the information received, uh, so far from feedback we've, we've gotten is, um, adequate, uh, and helpful in making decisions. In some cases, we've decided not to proceed in, in certain directions. In other cases, uh, we've, we've made architectural changes to our environment to accommodate the new thing that we're about to do. Um, but at least we're, we're we're having the engagement and we're able to deliver value to the organization by helping um, understand the cyber risk uh, uh, with respect to third-party vendors, with respect to uh, now everybody's rushing to the cloud. You know, you know, we we now have this uh, push to put as much as we can into the cloud, and I think that's kind of industry-wide. Um, but understanding what those risks are before we take that step is is critically important. Uh, the other aspect of that. Uh, that we haven't touched on yet is um, not just cyber risk, that is the risk of intrusion, the risk of disruption or de- degradation of services. Um, but we also had a conversation with our stakeholders uh, around, well, what are you going to do when this goes away at a point in time that you didn't choose? What does your business continuity look like with respect to this and other uh, other solutions that you have? Uh, have you thought about that? Uh, because this is not a 100% uptime solution. Um, we have a lot of those conversations and, and they're good conversations to have because now our stakeholders are thinking about the, the or what I would say is the inevitable. At some point, uh, the system is going to become unavailable. Maybe it's only for a day. Maybe it's only for a week. Um, in the most extreme cases, as we have seen over the last three years, it could be eight weeks mm-hmm. or forever for certain <laughs> for certain solutions. Um, so, so having that conversation, having the engagement to provide advice allows us to have the conversation around business continuity. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely huge. I've been I've been that's been an area I've been focused on in my conversations with CISOs in trying to understand in a health system who is making sure that the clinicians have some have have some idea how to go to paper uh when and if they have to and if it is an IT security incident that forces an application offline who has workshopped that outage and the specific communications that will happen with business leaders who it's going to how it's going to be like the specifics getting down, drilling down into the details of if there's an event, a security event, where either an application is taken down or Paul has to take it down, I have to shut this off. I need to call someone, the users, I need to call somebody and say, hey, in an hour, this is off. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I hope you know what you're doing. What you've said, which I, I haven't heard before, is that you're starting that conversation with the business leaders almost at the time that they go on the application, that they say, we want this. Okay, you want this. I'm going to do the security check. By the way, you might want to think about if, if and when you don't have the use of this, what you're going to do. It just Is, is that what's going on? 
And that, it, that yes. Uh, yeah. So in just about many of my conversations include some element of business continuity. So mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's reviewing systems that are coming in or systems that are being upgraded or changed in some some aspect, or whether we do this thing called executive rounding, where we where we circulate within our our system office and our sites of care and our service lines to to actually talk with team members, uh, frontline team members and and frontline managers and leaders about their experiences. Um, so I often bring up business continuity in those in those contexts as well. So what would you do if? Mm-hmm. Do you feel confident that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it just it's just to start the dialogue from that perspective. We also do um, a um, decision exercise, cyber decision exercise. So it's a series that we started. Our our goal is to try to do about four of those a quarter. Um, that we piloted it last year, uh, and it was based off of an executive tabletop exercise, cyber tabletop exercise that we had conducted two years in a row with with our most senior leaders about preparedness and um, uh, business continuity. It comes with a briefing on the current cyber environment so we understand risks and, and how bad things really are, which you know, they are, we know they're pretty bad. Um, but then we very quickly get into a conversation around not what we're doing with respect to containment of the cyber incident or recovering systems, which is an IT function, but rather what is that business unit going to do? What decisions do they need to make and when, and how much information do they need to make that decision? Right. So we walk through those scenarios to kind of highlight where those decisions may come and the kinds of information that they would expect to hear from, from inputs, from me, from the CIO, uh, from others. Um, uh, and, then, and then the impact of those decisions, you know, everything from do you have enough staff to uh, 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 be tel- uh, to be uh, room sitters, um, or to to run medications up and down the floors. Do you have enough paper on hand to actually start printing forms? What do you do when the printer breaks? Right, right, uh, right. Uh, what happens when you run out of paper, or somebody prints off and uses the last form? You know what, what? What? What's our what's our play in those situations? Because those are things that can derail operations very quickly, and those are just some examples of things that we talk about in those exercises. And then there's the the concept of you know, here's how it might look when we're ready to bring you back up, right? And here's how we're going to yes. deal with the data that's all on paper now. Yes. Um, that whole process that's got to be. I've heard that can be extremely complicated. Uh, so complicated that it doesn't actually happen. It, it depends. You know, for the medical information, that does have to get into the medical record. But for other business units, it may end up sitting in the boxes until the retention period is over and the information is then destroyed per policy. Mm-hmm. That might that might be the solution. The other aspect that we talk about is if we have gone to paper for a particular process. Where are we storing all of that? Because in most cases, hospitals have retooled and repurposed the uh, the uh, physical storage locations for paper forms or paper mm-hmm. materials to something else. So in a crisis, we may experience higher volume. So we have borders in the hallways. You're not putting your paper in the hallways. 
uh, where are you putting the paper? It's got to go someplace. It can't stay in the unit, can't stay in the department. It's going to be in the way very quickly. So we talk about things like that. Um, do we actually have a contract for somebody to move that paper? Uh, or is that something that we have to negotiate in the crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're good, they're good, robust conversations, and they, they do result in um, um, uh, follow-on actions and, and changes to uh, changes to the, you know the business continuity plan. Um, so yeah, we have that conversation as often as possible and at and at key points to kind of raise that um, uh, raise that awareness. Uh, one of the things I stress when we when we start talking about business continuity is it cannot be just a special event we do once a year to produce this massive book that nobody really trusts because the information is too old. Right. It really has to be a living process with pieces of information placed at, at good strategic points so that that information is recoverable when you need it. Um, a good business plan might only be a checklist. Maybe. just depends. Um, or maybe it needs to be a little bit more involved. It depends on the business unit. It depends on the operations. So, you know, in my conversations, there's many different structures people have in their organization, different C-suite titles. Um, There's emergency services or emergency management, which Mm -hmm. would be the entity that um, deals with any kind of disaster or outage, right? So there's there's an organization in health systems. I think it's called emergency management or services that, you know, dealing with the tornado, the flooding, whatever. Um, and then we have a IT outage and maybe perhaps IT security outage being one variety of mm-hmm. the outages you could have in a health system. What I guess the biggest question here is, what is the CISO's role in business continuity? What is your responsibility uh, that you need to initiate and drive versus, you know, a lot of people talk about collaboration and we all work together. Well, that always makes me concerned when people say, well, we all have to work together. I don't see anybody <laughs> driving it then. Well, who's driving? Well, we all have to work together. So wh- what is the CISO's responsibility? What's your best advice? You could say, if you're a CISO at a health system, make sure you're doing this. Yeah, I, I would say our role is ultimately to be advisors. Uh, rarely, well, in some organizations, perhaps the CISO has uh, approval or veto authority to stop things or to change things. Um, that's not always the case, but we are certainly advisors. Um, the expectation is for us to engage, engage with business leaders and have that conversation and help. So I have an information assurance team. They do mostly assessments, but they also aggregate um, the cyber risk for um, 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 uh, for reporting to the, to the senior leader. So we understand what our cyber risk is. Well, that same group can also have oversight over business continuity operations and help evaluate and assess those business continuity plans. They're just plans. Um, uh, the, uh, the other, I think, very important aspect is that part of our cyber education is to conduct these decision exercises to highlight the need to think ahead and plan for things that might be set up in business leaders' heads as um, de facto um, assumptions, assumptions on availability. Oh, IT is always there. They're always great. Something blips, they got it back right away, so I can rely on them 100% all the time. 
Um, that's not an assumption <laughs> that that one should make. Uh, and and having having discussions in whether it's a decision exercise or a tabletop or just a conversation, sometimes it's just a conversation uh, to talk about the aspects of business continuity and what assumptions that particular business leader might have and perhaps help un- help that business leader understand that some of those assumptions are probably not as strong as as you would like them to be for various reasons. I, I, so as advisors mm-hmm. and communicators, I think that's our main role um, is, is, to, is to be that um, partner and helping to drive understanding so that so that leaders can continue to lead their organizations within you know within a company. Uh, it's just amazing when I when I think about it that uh, how dependent the delivery of any business and even healthcare, especially healthcare, maybe is on technology, and how um, no matter how much we want to assure these systems and secure them, there are going to be outages, and no matter how much we want to plan, it's going to be extremely painful. Right. I mean, it's just going to be very, it's never going to be like, oh, let's just go to paper. No matter what we've done, it's going to be very, very painful. Right. And and this is, this is our reality. You know, healthcare probably deals with this more than any other organization. Uh, but this is our reality. We are here to deliver healthcare. That's what a healthcare entity does. That's what a hospital does. That's what health systems do. Um, uh, keeping records is a necessary component of that. Using electronic means makes that a lot easier, makes it flow easier. We can share information. We can get uh, uh, get treatment information to the right into the right hands. Um, but to build a rock solid bulletproof capability that can never go down is very expensive, onerously expensive. So we have to plan for those downtimes. We have to plan for, oh, we're going back to paper. Um, and we may have to courier paper around. That's just our reality. We will probably never get fully away from going back to paper. Uh, it, it will be part of our DNA forever, probably. Simply because it is just too expensive to have that bulletproof system. Now, at some point, maybe maybe technology gets to the point where uh, we we can uh, uh, separate the reliance on particular components enough so that that doesn't adversely affect uh, operations. Maybe we can get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, cloud offers that promise because uh, perhaps we can we can shift loads around into into other data centers, right? So that that does help. Um, but until we get to that plateau, paper is it. And we have to, we have to understand how we're going to handle that. Great point. Great point. Paul, we're, we're just about at a half, half hour and I can't believe it. Right. I mean, we didn't touch on many, many things I wanted to, uh, let me ask you one open-ended question and one close, um, open-ended question. Any other big trends, things you're looking at that you want to make sure you're preparing your organization to deal with? Uh, yes, the, the activity within the cyberspace is not going away. I think that's, I think all CISOs understand that. And, and I do believe most CIOs uh, understand this now as well. Um, invest in cyber hygiene. That is important. Part of raising the bar to make healthcare not attractive to ransomware operators or hacktivists or people that would do us harm is to ensure that 
our shop is relatively clean. Now that's easier said than done, especially for the small and medium hospitals. There's a whole lot of technology debt that that, that needs to be resolved. Uh, but cyber hygiene is where it's at. Invest in the cyber hygiene, pay attention to cyber hygiene. The basics are important. Um, I would submit to uh, small and medium hospitals, healthcare entities, that they should become partners with organizations like um, Health ISAC or uh, AHM. They should certainly make an introduction to their local FBI field office mm. or DHS region mm-hmm. um, uh, and establish those contacts and relationships. It, it, it's a small investment in time, uh, but if if an organization has a crisis, it is it, it is great to be able to pick up the phone and actually get to a person and say, I need help yeah. versus going the traditional route, reporting through IC3.gov or, or an 800 line and hoping somebody calls you back. Uh, so I, that, that's, that's what I would part with is, is ensure that uh, basic cyber hygiene um, uh, is, is top of mind and then reach out to other organizations and partners uh, just establish that channel for communications in case you need help later. Absolutely great advice, Paul. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. It went too fast. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you.